not what I'm talking about, although that is scary. It, that makes you jump. That makes you run and scream in terror. But what kind of fear motivates our behavior? What kind of fear changes our actions and our decisions? Now, for a lot of people, commonly, being laughed at is a very strong fear, and they will change their behavior to avoid being laughed at. For other people, loss of money is incredibly powerful. Uh, they, they, they are scared to lose any money, so they won't uh, do things that they might lose money at. For other people, it's loss of friends, family, dying of loved ones is incredibly powerful, and it changes their behavior. For some people, just losing in general, I don't know if you recognize that, but ask a casual baseball fan, they'll tell you who that is. Some people can be so scared of losing that they actually screw up and lose. That's a, a very common thing. Um, for me, growing up, one of the biggest fears for me was disappointing family. That's my dad, my grandpa Clay, and Uncle Al right there. Uh, but you didn't want to see those faces. If you screwed up and your, your family looks like that at you, that, that's a bad thing. And in Galatia, which is kind of central Turkey, uh, the Galatians were being motivated by fear, and they were being led by people, they're called Judaizers, who were also being motivated by fear in a real negative way. And, and the fear, there was, uh, they were afraid of being harassed. They were afraid of being persecuted. They were afraid of standing out in a culture that preferred one thing, which was in direct opposition to Christians. And so these Judaizers, these people that were leading, were the perfect definition of the wolf in sheep's clothing. These Judaizers said they were Christian and probably were, but they were not. They were not teaching the gospel, and they were leading the Galatian churches away from the truth and wanting people to work for their salvation. They're wanting to deny grace. And so taking a look at this book as a whole is pretty instructive for us. And the, the question is, if, you're, if your fear is motivating you, then how do you counter that? And the, the Galatians are in, an, in kind of a what not to do, kind of an example that way. The, the, the fear was causing the Judaizers to teach a false gospel, to lead people away from Jesus Christ. They were substituting themselves for God. They were substituting law for grace, and ultimately were substituting fear for faith. And as Christians, we're not called to live that way. And if you're taking notes, the central question for today that we'll be looking at is how do we live? How are we to live? How should we live? More specifically to the, the context of the, the passage is how should we live as a new creation. We'll be talking about being a new creation a lot today. And the central answer to that is to, we're to live for God's rewards. To live for God's rewards. To act with His love. To live by faith and not by fear. The passage that we'll be taking a look at uh, to answer those questions is found in Galatians chapter 6 verses 11 through 18 which will end uh, Galatians today, and then we'll kind of review it and sum it all up next week. But let me read the passage this morning, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into this. 
So this is Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. I'm reading out of the New American. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision is anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we gather before you as your church, we gather to worship you, worship you through your word, worship you through song, worship you through our fellowship. Father, we worship your goodness, your holiness, your constant and perfect love of us. And Father, we confess before you as a church that we don't love in the same way. We love imperfectly, that we are short-sighted and forget what's important. And Father, we ask you to forgive us for that. We ask you this morning to teach us to let your word come through my efforts cleanly and clearly, directly from you, that I would not get in the way of this, but Father, that each one of us would walk away from here with a special message from you through your word that be implanted into our hearts and let us leave here closer to you than we are when we came in. We thank you, Father, that we can be here in this church and ask for your grace and mercy to be upon us this morning. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior. Amen. So, Galatia. Uh, the churches at Galatia, quick review, which you've, you've heard some of this, but it's important to get context for this. Um, this is written in 48 A.D., so right in the middle of the first century. Uh, it's written to churches, Christian churches in Galatia. This is not Paul writing to unbelievers. He's writing to a church just like you and I are in, uh, very similar. The church in Galatia is being misled. There were uh, the Judaizers, which we're talking a lot about today. They were adding requirements to salvation. So a lot of the book of Galatians is contrasting what the Judaizers are teaching with what the Bible says. And it's always the same uh, contrast between faith and the law, between the flesh and the spirit, and between what God does and what we do. And the Galatian churches, the Judaizers, were focusing on the law, the flesh, and themselves. And Paul's calling them back to the other side. Um, last week, in our last episode, we talked about the two judgments that believers will face. And the one judgment most people are pretty familiar with, the great white throne, which is at the end of time, when things are summed up, believers go one direction and unbelievers go another direction. That's the great white throne of judgment. And you can check your references, and it's, the question is, do you believe or not? Now, if you're a believer, you will go to a second judgment. And this is the one that isn't taught as often, or at least in my background wasn't taught as often, and that's the Bema Seat. And the Bema Seat is where your works are judged, and works that are valuable in God's eyes, worthwhile in God's eyes, you will receive a reward for. 
and works that are not worthwhile are gone. They just fade to nothingness. And I always give the example of things I do for people are probably worthwhile. Time I spent watching Netflix, probably not worthwhile. You know, Seattle Mariners are great. I don't know if the time I'm spending on that is necessarily going to get a reward for me in heaven. And Paul makes this point a lot to the believers because as believers, the Galatians are pursuing a whole doctrine led by the Judaizers that is worthless. Uh, uh, no rewards at all. In fact, it could be worse than that. But we'll come back to that in a few minutes. So Paul is writing a personal letter to the Galatian churches. He's angry, he's hurt, and he's scared for the Galatians. And it's a very personal appeal to come back to Jesus Christ, to live for Jesus, to live by faith, and kind of avoid what's going on in their culture. Speaking of their culture, Galatia, the culture was, I'll call it the majority culture was Jewish. That was the, the common, what most people talk about, it'd be like being a Republican in Grant County. It's, it's, it's what's most, not everybody certainly, but it's common. <laughs> now, the Jewish majority tends to harass the non-Jewish minority, and so the Judaizers are not wanting to be harassed. So they try to do things that outwardly look like they're Jewish, like preaching circumcision, preaching the law, follow the Jewish festivals and observances in order to gain righteousness. And they've now brought that into the Christian church. And as we talked about last week, that mocks God, that denies Jesus Christ. It is worse than worthless. It is actually a negative. And if you're talking about how to be saved... Oh, salvation? That reminds me. Are there tenses to salvation? Say it with me, please. I was justified. I am being. And I will be. Excellent. We're getting good at this. This is good. These are good fundamentals to remind ourselves of. But if you're preaching to new believers, people that don't yet know Jesus, and you're preaching a false gospel, are those new people saved? See, that's the scary part of this. We'll come back to the scary part in a little bit. So it's a practical letter calling a Christian church back to faith and to get away from outward signs and outward things. And it's practical. It's a practical letter. So let's get into it. Part one. Uh, we'll take a look at actually the first verse and the next to last verse because they're dealing with the same thing. And that's before Paul starts talking about his message here in this passage, he establishes his authority. And he's really giving two kinds of authority. He's giving a personal appointed authority, and then he's also talking about his personal earned authority. The first one is personal appointed authority. He is speaking directly about, you have to kind of remember Paul's history. Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jew's Jew. He was the most Hebrew of anyone in the Hebrew race. He was a persecutor of Christians. He led persecution to the point where Christians were killed because of Paul's zeal for being Hebrew. And God appeared to him directly, made him an apostle, put that authority on Paul, Saul directly and changed him to Paul. It's very similar to when you become a police officer, you have what's called a commissioning ceremony. And usually the husband or the wife or the father, brothers, 
the officer will come up full uniform but no badge. And then the badge is pinned onto the officer and then they are sworn in by a judge. They are appointed as an officer of the law. Paul was appointed as an apostle of Jesus Christ at that moment on the road to Damascus. He had personal authority that was appointed to him. Now secondly, and it's, it's a little bit out of order, the second passage there is verse 17. He's reminding the Galatians that he has not just been appointed, he has personal earned authority. He talks about his scars, the marks on his body. And the, the word marks in this case is a very unique word. It only appears once in the Bible. This particular word right there, it's stigma, which is where we get a lot of other meanings from. But the idea is it's a brand, literally, like a cattle brand. Like the owner put the brand on Paul's body. And it deals with not just the figurative marks, probably depending on which uh, expert you like to listen to, it probably means some physical marks as well, either from Paul, uh, the chains that have been around his arms so long as he's been imprisoned in Rome would create calluses and sores, or when he was stoned in Antioch, he would have wounds, visible wounds on his body that he earned through preaching the gospel. So when Paul says, listen to me, I have authority to speak to you, Galatian church. It's not just what God has done in Paul's life, but it's also this other side, coupled with the experience Paul's have gone through, that he has some authority to listen. And I think they listen. Also an interesting note here, as Dave pointed out, Paul wrote this, either the section or the book, in his own handwriting. Normally he would have a scribe, he would dictate. And Paul was getting old at this part. He said, look with which large letters I am writing to you. Now, we have a connection to Paul in America. And that if you go back to our most important foundational document in American history, that would be the Declaration of Independence. They voted on this on, uh, what was that date? Sometime in July. Early July, 1776, they met and voted to approve this draft. Okay, so I'm working in a little U.S. history. That's not a surprise. First person to sign the document, John Hancock. John Hancock was a 39-year-old cocky, rich merchant. Now, his signature is a little larger than everyone else's. John Hancock said, I signed it so large so that even old George III, who had bad eyesight and didn't like to be reminded of it, I signed it so big so even old George III could read it. Now, was John Hancock thinking of Galatians 6.11? I like to think so. I like to think that that was kind of in the back of his mind, or it just tells you a little bit how kind of obnoxious we can be as Americans, and that, that makes me feel pretty good about myself right there, that we come from pretty bold stock. The point of all this is that Paul had massive authority to speak to this issue to the Galatians, and it would be the Galatians would snap too when Paul reminds of that, that. Which takes us to section two. Uh, on your notes, we're going to kind of do a little contrast. What the Galatians kind of believe in, what Paul's calling us we should be believing or should be doing. And he starts with what the Judaizers believe. So the Judaizers, broadly, they will glorify in what they look like, in their outward appearance. They will glorify in what they do and look at me, I'm so righteous, I'm a Judaizer, I'm a wonderful person. 
and they made sure whatever they did looked that way. And it's a contrast between verses 12 and 13 and verses 14 through 16, and really every other part of the Bible. Um, that's why when he asked, does fear motivate you? And what fear motivates you can be very important. We'll be talking about motives a lot today. The fear of people was very motivating to the Judaizers. They didn't like to be made fun of. They didn't want to be persecuted, so they tried to comport themselves similarly to uh, the Hebrews. Specifically, as it points out, uh, circumcision was big. So I kind of wondered how that left the Christian women involved in that, out of that, but uh, they talked about avoiding harassment. They would observe festivals. They would go to things that were very showy, the equivalent of praying on the street corner. They would follow the Jewish law, except, as it points out, not really. <laughs> they just did enough to make it look like they were following the law, but they didn't really follow all the law. There's 613 mosaic law. It's a big, long scroll. They observed the ones that, you know, you could see. Uh, in their hearts, probably not so much. Remember the culture. They're a part of their culture in Galatia in 48 AD, and it went along with that. The, the Judaizers were catering to the culture. Motive was fear, fear of rejection, fear of uh, being culturally irrelevant. They wanted to show themselves to be self-righteous in outward appearances. And that kind of logically makes sense. They did not boast in the cross. And that kind of makes sense also. You think about a Jewish culture, we kind of sometimes forget what the cross is. That's a device of torture. Dishonorable torture. Uh, David Holowick, who was a, he's a pastor at a Baptist Church in New Jersey, he wrote a whole article about this, but he basically says that the first century has even greater problems from the cross than we do. Polite Roman society would never mention the word cross because citizens, Roman citizens, were, would not be put to death on a cross. If you were a Roman citizen and a criminal, go through trial, they're going to execute you, they would behead you. That was an honorable way to die, whereas a cross was for dishonorable people, people that weren't citizens of Rome. Conquered areas, slaves, people that weren't citizens, they'd hang on a cross. In fact, Paul as a Roman citizen, would not be crucified when he ends his life. Further, if you think about Jewish culture, if you read the Old Testament, it says, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. If you were a Jew, how could God curse God? How could the Messiah hang on a cross? That, that, it just, it just, it's too far away from Jewish culture to recognize that can't be right. So the idea of that a savior would come and go through the most, not just painful death, but a dishonorable death, a death with zero honor, common, criminal, lowest of the low, what you would do to a child molester. That's how our savior took it for us. So the culture in Galatia was like, eh, that, that doesn't make sense at all to them. So why would they boast in the cross? No, they would boast in themselves. They would boast in their pride. Uh, they would like to brag about what good people they are, how much they give. And they did it in a hypocritical fashion. And here's kind of a little side note. If you're ever trying to figure out if something's a cult or not, hypocrisy is a good, good indicator. Probably not a good thing if they're saying do this, but they don't follow it themselves. That's usually a good indicator that's a false gospel, a false teaching. 
And I don't care what the endeavor is, if it's led by hypocrites, probably not something you want to be a part of. Like the Judaizers. Glorying outward appearances, but not following it real well. And, excuse me, the results of that, okay, one of Gary's phrases, condition and consequence. The condition, glorifying in yourself, trusting in yourself, and self-righteousness, what's the result of that? What condition comes from that? Well, at best, it's worthless. At best, it's a waste of time. Uh, Just across the page, verses 7 and 8 in chapter 6, whatever a man sows, he will reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from his own flesh reap corruption. So at best, it's worthless. However, what if those leaders, the Judaizers, misled people away from the gospel? Not a fire and brimstone guy, but I think we need to be honest here what it's saying. If the Judaizers misled people so that they were not saved, they led people directly to the lake of fire. God's going to take a pretty dim view on that. I don't speak for him in this regard, but I'm pretty sure that that is not something that's going to be judged well when eternity comes. At the Bema seat, if you have led people away from the gospel, I can't think of anything scarier. As somebody who stands here and preaches, that's something that goes through your mind. Anybody who steps into this, you think about that. It can't be about you. It has to only be about the Bible, only be about Jesus Christ. And the Judaizers were very clear it wasn't about Jesus Christ. It was about the law. It was about your outward appearance. Doctrine matters. What is taught really matters. All things are not equal. Chapter, not chapter 3, the third part on your notes. Paul wants to bring a contrast to this. One of Don Knox's favorite words in the Bible is almost always it follows something good. You're sinful, but here comes Jesus. We have this problem, but here's the solution to it. In this case, you got all the, the stuff going on with these guys, but. And Paul follows it up with this kind of odd phrase, may it never be. We blow right through that, may it never be, that doesn't make that much sense. Your Bible might translate that as God forbid it. The word is a phrase, it's... Um, It's may it never be, but it's the strongest rebuttal that exists in the Greek language. And the Greek language, remember, is about ten times bigger than our language. They have lots of subtleties. Meganoito is the word, and it is the strongest, it's a shout. It's a decisive, overwhelming rebuttal. There isn't anything you can say that's stronger than that in Greek. So when you see meganoito, or that may it never be, that's a big deal. And it's kind of a catchphrase. Paul uses it. If you see that in another passage, you probably, oh, I bet you Paul wrote that. And you'd probably be right. May it never be. I will boast in only the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's how I've been dead to the world and how the world became dead to me is for the cross of Christ. Oswald Chambers said that every doctrine that is not embedded in the cross of Jesus Christ will lead astray. There's your second tip for how to avoid cults and bad teaching. If it doesn't put Jesus Christ at the center of it, it's probably bad. It's probably misleading. It will probably take you in the wrong direction. It's a good question to ask when somebody comes to your door 
selling you on a faith? What's their view of Jesus Christ? How important is Jesus Christ? So look at Paul's statement. Look at his, his statement. I will boast only in the cross, the wonderful, wondrous cross of Jesus Christ. This Roman torture device is what I'm going to boast in. That's pretty countercultural in 48 AD. And in fact, ladies and gentlemen, that's pretty countercultural today. You really think about it. That's pretty different from what our world represents. Paul's motives are higher. He is calling us to glorify us, you and I, and the Galatians, in Christ and Christ alone. To trust and glorify in Christ's actions, forgiving us, redeeming us, justifying us. That he brings us the Holy Spirit so we can be sanctified in him. And he will make our glorification possible by paying the price for our sin on the cross. Only Christ, sola Christos, only Christ. Amen. That'd be good to say it. Amen. Amen. Yes, thank you. <laughs> you guys are a little quiet this morning. It's, 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 you know, got an hour time change. I'll give you a little grace there. So, if Paul says, I'll boast in Jesus, and the Galatians are following the Judaizers and glorifying in their outward appearance, it kind of is a question, okay, what's important then? What's really important? The outward appearance doesn't mean anything. What is important? And that's where we're at here with this. Okay? And Paul's saying the outward appearances are not important. What's important is right there. It says a new creation. I didn't highlight it. Okay. So it's a new creation is what's important. If you're taking notes, that would go in there right there. The new creation. Okay, the law, the deeds, circumcision, not important. What is important? That you're a new person. That you're a new person in Jesus Christ. John 3, 3. Jesus speaking, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Romans 6, 4, Paul speaking, therefore, we have been buried with him and through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in the newness of life. What's important? You're a new person. When you were justified, you became a new person. It's why we get excited to hear testimonies. Thank you. Again, set it up perfectly for us. Testimonies are encouraging. Why? It's a miracle. You're one person, now you're somebody totally differently. The Holy Spirit's entered you. You're a different person. They should be celebrated. We should have cake and trumpets every time we have. We, a, a testimony's a big deal. We share that with one another. And Paul's saying that's what's important. That's what's important in life. You will walk by this new rule as a new person. Walk and rule. Interesting words. Walk means the totality of all your decisions. How you live your life. Live your life consistent with being a Christian. It's not just your, your literal walk. It's your, your walk in life. And rule, it's funny that rule, this guy, I thought we were talking uh, rules and laws were bad. Why would he use this word? Well, in Greek, the, the word is actually, it's canon which is where we talk about what's official and all that, but it really, a better one is ruler, like a, a, a ruler, 12 inches. Okay, the, the word canon in Greek means a measuring rod, like a ruler, and the idea is that you measure your life, your walk, your totality of your life, by following Christ. You measure it by living as a new creation. That should be the standard, not by your outward appearances, but by are you, are you part of living as this new creation? 
And Paul gives this example of live by this rule and you'll have peace and you'll have mercy. Peace and mercy. And then he talks later on about grace. Those are three pretty good gifts, aren't they? Peace, mercy, grace. Think about that. Typical God, he gives those to you, but they're also something you can share with other people. Peace is an interesting one. Peace is not a happy feeling. Peace is not relief. Peace is being able to look death in the eye and go, eh, that's okay. Take a geo service. Sorry. If you were here for Gio Lopez's memorial, Gio was looking death in the eye. Gio had peace. He knew where it was going. He knew what was up. And that's a peace you can share with somebody. Mercy. Being forgiven. You can show mercy to others as you've been shown from God. Those are good gifts. It's not the same, and I, a little aside, sometimes when we get out of things, we feel relief. I had somebody tell me years ago, they didn't want to, they were in a ministry in the church, and it was getting hard for them, and so they had to quit. And they said, oh, when I, I decided I was going to quit this ministry, I felt such peace. In my head, the sarcasm meter was pegged. Really? You quit a ministry of the church, and God gave you peace because you quit a ministry in his church. Really? They felt relief. Now, there might be good reasons for that, and I'm not chewing out their decision, but it probably wasn't peace we were feeling. It was probably relief. Peace goes way beyond relief. Peace is where you can look at something horrible, and you can have peace with it. And then he has this other phrase, the Israel of God. I don't know if that stands out to you or not. Because when I'm reading, I think the God of Israel, God of Israel. You see God of Israel all through the Bible, and I see the Israel of God. Whoa, what are so if you look that up, it's pretty simple, actually. There's the Israel of God, and then there's the Israel of flesh. Two churches, if you will. There's the Hebrew church, which is made up of people who are Jewish genetically, the Hebrew race. That's the Israel of flesh. And then Paul likes this phrase, the Israel of God, meaning you and I. Gentiles, non Hebrew Christians, the church, the universal church, every one of us in the church of all time is known as the Israel of God. It's a little bit of a reference back to chapter 3 in Galatians when he talked about our spiritual ancestor of Abraham, who was saved by faith just like us, and how that Abraham, we're descendant of Abraham. Same method of salvation, same method of justification through, by faith through grace. Just like us. And that's us. We're the Israel of God. And Paul's saying that when you're following Jesus, when you are living your life like a new creation, you will have peace, you will have mercy, not just for you, but for the universal church. It's something we get and it's something we share. Which, again, that's pretty typical God. So quick review. Situation in Galatia. Jewish culture. Judaizers trying to fit in with the Jewish culture in a very hypocritical way, teaching very showy, very outward, excuse me, signs of what they would do this and you'll be saved, denying Christ. The Galatian church, buying into it. Paul, personal connection with the Galatian church, hears about it and says, look, listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. 
I have authority to speak to you. Don't glorify in your appearances and in your pride. Glorify in Jesus Christ and what he's done with you and walk in a manner consistent with being the new person that you are. You'll get gifts for it. You'll get rewards in heaven when you do it. Base things on godly motives. And that takes you to that central question and central answer. How do we live as a new creation? Live for God's rewards. Live with a motive to act in God's love. Live by faith, not by fear. Motives are big. So, that sums up, that's the end of Galatians. What do we do with this passage? And this is where we go to takeaways, or application, depending on how you look at this. And I I will caution you, as I do every time, the applications are things personally I've learned. I share them with you, not to say I'm right and you've got to do what I tell you to do with application, but simply to say, this is what I learned and I'm going to work on. I share it with you. Maybe it stimulates you to come up with something. Maybe you totally disagree with my application, which is fine. We're both Christians. We, the Holy Spirit works in different people in different ways. I share it so that you start thinking about it because you should walk away from a passage going, gosh, what do I do with that passage? How does that change me spending this time together this morning? So I have three. Three applications, three takeaways, three my thoughts free with the price of admission this morning. First off, doctrine really matters. Okay, we have a tendency as Westerners to blow off doctrine just a little bit, to kind of say, ah, I don't need to hear a bunch of doctrine stuff. No. If you're a Christian, the most important thing you bring with you besides your Bible is your brain. You have to be a critical thinker to be a Christian. You have to have your brain turned on. When you come in here... Don't follow just the person that you like on TV or don't say, well, I believe this because Gary Knox said so. You have to have the personal relationship to get involved in this. The best antidote for bad teaching is good teaching. The best antidote for a false Bible doctrine is good Bible doctrine. Stay in the Word. Keep your brain turned on. The doctrine really matters. I have friends, non-believers, say, well, don't you Christian churches, you guys argue all the time, and you all, you know, aren't you all basically the same church? No. Now, there's a lot of things that are similar within the mainline Christianity, but there's also some ones that are out there that are things that aren't in the Bible on justification. That's a problem. Now, I'm not going to go to the cross and be persecuted on, you know, whether you have to be a believer, Baptist, to be a member, you have to be baptized. I mean, there's some things that are, you know, we do that are, okay, that's just what we do. But when you talk about how you're justified, the method of salvation, Jesus Christ, or your own works, I'll go to the cross for that. And we all should. Doctrine matters. Stay involved in teaching. Fact check the sermon. Gary or I say something, check it. Look it up yourself. Okay, the internet's full of study tools. Okay, get, have a personal connection with the doctrine so you know what you're being taught is authoritative and it's in the Bible. And keep it simple. Jesus Christ, right? Justified by faith through grace. Sanctified by faith through grace. Will be glorified through faith by grace. Second, and this is kind of obvious, boast in things that have to do with Jesus, not yourself. Focus on him, not your outward signs, not the outward appearance. It's kind of the antidote to modern Judaizers. And, and it's kind of a funny thing. Where Gary and Don are in the Flathead Valley in Montana. And 
Vange and I go there every summer for a big horse event or Glacier Park, depending on, you know, what you're there for. Um, I swear, eight out of ten churches in the Flathead Valley have a giant 10-foot by 20-foot sign on the side of the church with the Ten Commandments written on it. Okay, are you saying you're Israel? That you're, what about the other 603 commandments? Uh, where's the rest of the law? Why are you putting this on the side of your church? What? Is that the message? Our church believes in the Ten Commandments. Well, that, that, that's good, I guess. What about faith? What about grace? What about love? What about Jesus Christ? Where's your cross? It's an odd thing to celebrate or to, to put on a giant sign on the side of your church. And you know what it comes from? It comes from, it's a showy thing. One church started doing it, and they made fun of the other churches. So, well, we don't want to look like we don't believe the Ten Commandments. We better put that on our church, too. And all of a sudden, it spreads. And then you've got somebody from the outside, like me, who's kind of obnoxious and has a big mouth, and goes, why? What is going on with that? And it's weird. I don't know. I, I would like to hear from somebody that put that on the side of their church. I haven't found that person yet. But everybody else I talked to was like, yeah, I don't get that either. It's just everybody does it. That's an outward appearance thing. Is it objectively bad? I don't know. Maybe it's not. But... For me, again, I'm giving you the application. For me, that's weird. So I don't like those outward signs. They make me nervous. I don't like protests. I'm not going to be a part of any protest going on. Historically, I think I've got good justification for that. But rallies, even if they're for good things, they can be twisted very easily to become prideful. Let's all meet, at, pray around the flagpole. Okay, why are we doing this in public? It can be twisted. I'm not saying it's bad, but it can be weird. I don't even like bumper stickers. About, you know, you used to have little fish. I used to stick that on my first car. Ah, I'm a Christian. And then I thought about it. What am I saying? Also, when I speed, what am I saying with a fish on the back of my car? That's probably a dumb thing to do. So outward appearances, and if you have bumper stickers to fish, I'm not, this is me, not you. For me, that's too easily to get into my pride and to, to do some things that aren't, that again, are pointing to myself, not pointing to Jesus Christ. So be careful about that. I'd be careful. If you share, share the way Jesus shared, in love, quietly, humbly. And last, the, the big answer to the whole question, be motivated to please God, not please other people. Because what is popular is not always right, and what is right is not always popular. If you start chasing public acclaim, it will kill you. You'll be twisted up in the wind pretty fast. If we live for God's rewards, I think we're in a pretty good shape. And it's all about your motive. If your motive is to please God, you're going to be okay. It won't be about you. What we say, what we do, what we post, what we share, and how we share and post and say and do matter to God. And we'll be evaluated at some point. And I'd rather be evaluated trying to be too loving or too gentle and maybe not bold enough, but if, I'm, if I make it about me, I know I'm going to slip up. So I try to be motivated about God, not motivated by anything else. And what's funny, we started with fear and to not be motivated by fears. And I was sitting at the breakfast table going over this one more time this morning. I knew Star Wars would show up in a sermon someday. And I didn't think of this until this morning. Otherwise, you'd have the clip and the quote. But if you've watched Star Wars enough times, like a big old nerd like me, Yoda. Fear is the path to the dark side. 
That's bad. You should be laughing at that more. That, that was, you're, you're making me awkward now. Even Yoda says, fear is the path to the dark side. It leads to anger, leads to hate, leads to suffering. I don't know which, which one it was, but it's in there. And I believe that's true, and that would fit with this, this thing. What motivates us? If we're motivated too much by fear, especially fear of people, we're going to do some dumb things. If we're motivated by pleasing our Lord, we're probably going to do some good things. We're probably going to be okay. Remember what you believe. What you believe matters. What you believe is makes you who you are. That's how you were saved. What you believe matters. And that, my friends, is the end of the book of Galatians. Keep that focus right there. When you think of Galatians, think about glorifying in that, and that alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you this morning that we have your word in a language we can understand. We give thanks to you that you established this church decades and decades ago, that people, men and women, sacrificed greatly to bring us this church, to bring us the leadership, to bring us a doctrine, to uh, just allow us to be here in a way that we can honor you, glorify you, and worship you in freedom. We thank you for a nation that allows us that freedom. We thank you again for the men and women that have gone before us there to create that freedom for us through you. Most of all, Father, we give thanks to you for your Son, the cornerstone of our faith. And Father, as we celebrate your faith that you gave down to us, let us worship you.